Hi, I'm Alex Jump, and this is Focus on Health, a podcast dedicated to discussing and bringing to light the topics surrounding health, wellness, and workplace culture in the food and beverage industry. Through these conversations, I hope to explore the unique challenges that hospitality workers face from workplace relationships and work-life balance to guest interactions and everything in between. This week, my guest is Lauren Moat, a Toronto native. Lauren and her husband relocated to Amsterdam in early 2020. Lauren owns and operates multiple successful businesses, including The Bittered Sling and Chard and Laver. She was inducted into the Dame Hall of Fame in 2016 and has been listed in the top four for the best bar mentor at the Spirited Awards by Tales of the Cocktail. Hi everyone, I'm Alex Jump and this is Focus on Health. Today I'm joined by Toronto native, now living in Amsterdam, and all-around incredible woman, Lauren Moat. Hi, Lauren. Hey, Alex. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here and uh, joining me on the end of your Monday. Um, I'd love to just go ahead and kick things off by having you tell everyone who you are and, and what you do and what makes you so amazing. Sure thing. So I have been a bartender for uh, over 21 years. I've been in the industry for 24 years. I am born and raised in downtown Toronto in Canada. I moved to Vancouver in 2007. And then in 2019, I moved to Amsterdam. I'm the Diageo Reserve and world-class global cocktailian. Um, that is a, it's a, a loaded position that I'm sure we'll talk more about as, as we, we carry on in our conversation. I'm also the co-owner of Bittered Sling Bitters, which my husband, Chef Jonathan Shavonsek, and I opened in 2010 in Western Canada. It's an award-winning cocktail bitters now distributed internationally. And we also own another company called Chard and Laver, which is a consulting firm that is based here in the Netherlands. That's amazing. Um, you know, so much, so many things going on in um, in your world. I know that we'll have a lot of fun talking a little bit more about um, the companies that you own, as well as the work that you do for Diageo. Um, but I'd love to start just by you know maybe chatting a little bit about your move. Um, you've lived in Amsterdam for just over a year and. I think it's fair to say that spending your first year in a new city in lockdown isn't exactly how anybody expects moving to go. So um, how are you all holding up? Um, and if you feel comfortable chatting about it, is there anything you can share about how you managed your mental health through through that time? For sure. It's, uh, it's, it's been a really interesting year. And, you know, the, the reason why we chose to move to Amsterdam is for a few reasons. So the first one being that Amsterdam is very similar to Vancouver, I would say in climate and also, um, I guess, the people feel really similar. There's also this, uh, this guiding light love for Canadians here in the Netherlands. Um, so there, I think from a lifestyle perspective, Amsterdam was, uh, was on our top three list. Now, the reason why we wanted to move was actually that Vancouver, it, it felt like we had reached sort of the, the pinnacle of where we could go in Vancouver and it, it seemed to get progressively more expensive. And we, you know, especially for us both being people that have transitioned out of working in bars and restaurants and being more on the road, uh, both marketing and also, you know, distributing and selling bittered sling or doing ambassador work, 
it was becoming increasingly difficult and very, very expensive to have Vancouver as a home base, which, uh, you know, which is sad when you get to, to that moment, but we felt that it was uh, a really amazing stepping stone for us uh, to be able to see what's next. And my, my role in Diageo as a, a consulting role, uh, being the global ambassador for world-class and also representing the uh, really aspirational and amazing brands within the Diageo Reserve portfolio that include Kettle One Vodka, Johnny Walker, uh, Tanqueray 10 Gin. So there's some pretty amazing brands. And I was, I was on the road with, uh, with Diageo for uh, about three years prior to moving to Amsterdam. And it was also very challenging to have Vancouver as the home base uh, because of how far removed it was to a lot of the places that I was traveling to where we were doing trainings and developing education for bartenders. So I, the team that I report to is also based in Amsterdam. So we thought it would be a really great move if everything lined up that we could get ourselves to Amsterdam. And the other great thing is that Jonathan and I invested like our, you know, our own personal cash behind moving to Amsterdam as well, which, you know, in, we're talking about pandemic now that, uh, you know, things have, have, have obviously changed for everybody, ourselves included in the last year. And, you know, if I look back, would we still have done the move knowing that, you know, in December, 2019, we landed in Amsterdam and then two months later we would go like the whole world would go into a lockdown, but it's, uh, it, it's just one of those things where, you know, Amsterdam now represents something much greater than it was before, before it represented, okay, we're, we're here every three months or so. Uh, well, for me, especially uh, doing stuff for work and doing training and, and development, but could it be something so much more than that? And I think moving here, it has really changed a perspective on a, on a few things, which gets also to the, to the part about mental health, how small the planet really is and how connected our community is as well. And it doesn't really matter where you live, but also life is almost too short in a way not to, you know, not to jump at an opportunity when it might be, you know, staring you in the face and, and maybe having the courage and perhaps the right timing in order to pursue what might be by following a dream that seems to be unfolding. Um, so a lot of, uh, and a lot of that thinking, you know, developed as, as soon as we moved here, but then a lot of that thinking started to really, you know, manifest itself when we started going into lockdown, we kept, you know, looking around and thinking, oh my goodness, I can't, I can't believe our, our industry and, you know, what we're in as well as, as, as contractors and also as manufacturers, as part of a supply chain, you know, we at Bittered Sling, we also employ, you know, a lot of uh, bartender ambassadors and with Diageo, of course, there's, there's so many people connected to, to that supply chain. And so it was really, it was really hard um, not to just see the industry, you know, crumbling on, um, on a local scale here in the Netherlands and in Europe and the UK, but also, you know, our, our connections and communities around the world, the bartenders that we've spent so much time with around the world and and to see that that was like the overwhelming part of um of lockdown which really transformed uh thinking and you know I, I did hit rock bottom during during lockdown because it was it was very very overwhelming and so difficult just just standing still for a moment in the surrealist moment that 
you just couldn't believe it was happening. And so there were, there were a lot of really, you know, really dark moments, but I think having a boxing bag has helped, you know, having, having a heavy bag, um, having, you know, having, having my husband, my goodness, um, you know, Jonathan, he's, he's, he's so incredibly positive. And if he's, and if he's feeling the, the weight of the world, um, I don't know where he finds the strength to, to hide it or manage it, but he's been strong for both of us on, on a, a, a very regular basis and um, not knowing what the future holds. And we still, you know, Alex, you and I are having this conversation now, but we still don't know what the future holds. And, you know, I'm a short-term pessimist, but a long-term optimist. And, you know, I lead every decision with my heart as well as my head, but my heart leads first um, because it's the right thing to do. And I think uh, being true to myself in, in that moment, albeit hard at times, has been part of, I, I suppose, the cathartic way I've dealt with my mental health during the last year as well. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate that so much. And, you know, a lot of what you shared just now reminds me so much of something that my, my therapist and I have talked about, which is like, you know, you can never you can never know what the quote unquote right decision would have been or is like, because you just never can know what would have happened otherwise. You know, all you can know is, is what's happening now. And that's it. You know, you can't, you can't look back and say like, if I had made this decision instead, then it would have been better because you don't know how things would have unfolded. Right. So it's like, all you can know is like, I made the decision to move. I'm here now. Um, and like, and what's my next step forward? Um, because, you know, if you look back on the, on the past and say, if I hadn't moved, then maybe this would be my situation, but you don't know that that would be the situation, you know? So it's kind of like make the decisions that, like you said, that your heart is telling you are the right decisions and, um, and trust in yourself and, and make decisions out of that like deep trust um, is really all you can do. And I think for people, uh, other people maybe like me, where you want to be so in control of of the future, right, and like be able to make these calculated decisions that if you do X, Y, and Z, then like you know this is the output. Um, but the unfortunate reality of life is that you can never know the the end result. Um, you just gotta make decisions and trust yourself. Looking to reclaim some of the restorative time that you lost during the last few months? Be sure to check out the pre-shift meditation series brought to you by Beam Suntory's Bourbon Time. It takes place in the last Monday of every month at 3 p.m. Eastern, now through September. For more information, please visit fohealth.org. Oh yeah, and and listen, therapists and psychologists, they're they're exactly right, and and it's in so many ways, trying to help us understand that living in hindsight is a very dangerous place to be, you know, living and, and it's not living in the past necessarily because our past is a, is a really big part of what makes us who we are in our present and where we might go in our future. But the hindsight of thinking, oh, I should have taken a left turn instead of a right turn. Living in that moment and, and sort of feeling like you blame one specific decision that could have altered you know, I always say the space-time continuum, that it could have altered <laughs> everything. Um, you know, I, I think it's, um, it's, it's dangerous. And I, the other, the other part of that is, you know, my mom has been such a strong and spiritual force 
through all of this. I know you have a, a very close relationship with your mom too. And I would talk to her every single day, which is probably not any different than, than before lockdown, but you know, I've, I've, I've started to see a therapist, you know, um, maybe once a month now. And, but my mom, she wanted to be my therapist during all of this. She's like, I will help you through this. I just, I know you so well. And I just really want to be able to help you. And you have to follow the signs and you have to follow things that feel like they're meant to be that are lining up. And it just, it, it challenged me to look at a situation in a different way where you could feel that you were still in power with this in the situation, but you were in power based on the things that you had access to in your circle of influence, where you could really affect decisions or where you could really affect your future in that, in that moment. And that, that was also incredibly helpful. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. I mean, I'm very grateful for the relationship that I have with my mother as well. And um, it's not always been that way. You know, I was a terror as a teenager and never in my wildest dreams when I was, you know, 15, 16, would I imagine that now at 29, I talk, I call my mom every time I get in the car <laughs> um, to talk to her. So um, yeah, I, you know, I have a lot of love for the advice that moms can give us. Uh, they really do know. DHL, hold on one second. This is like, this is real life here. Hold on. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> we are all good. <laughs> that's so it's so random you should actually like keep that in <laughs> so crazy when life happens. yeah it does yeah. happen <laughs> yeah um, so um you know you you started talking a little bit about this as you were talking about your move to Amsterdam um but I guess I want to talk a little bit about your your place in our industry and, and how you got to where you are now um you're known as, uh, you know, globally as an incredible mentor in our industry. And I think that um, the thing about mentorship is that, you know, it requires putting a lot of yourself out there. And that's kind of been the theme of a lot of the conversations I've had over the last few months. Um, I'd love to hear any thoughts that you have on, you know, how you got to where you are now and, um, how you know how mentorship can make our industry a better place to work and live and and anything else that maybe comes to mind on this topic definitely and i think sort of setting the the scene for this first is important because i come from a um a family a very a very interest everyone comes from an interesting family and so i'll just share the story of mine my uh my father's family they are third generation canadian uh, from Eastern Europe. And my grandmother, Rose, who was 103 and still going strong today, she was the one out of her. Yeah, she's she's amazing. She still wears jeans as well, which is amazing. <laughs> like she's just so cool. Um, and, and so she still lives in, in Toronto and my, my dad is her full-time caregiver. And she was the one out of her eight siblings 
and herself, she was the one that was sort of tapped on the shoulder by her father to run the family business. Um, and she, she did that. And so that strong entrepreneurial spirit and that strong element of, do you have to choose between family and career? Can you have both? Do you do one or the other? That was embedded in, in her. Um, you know, for better or worse, that was that was what she did. And on my mom's side, uh, we had a, a, a very sort of similar way of looking at the power that that women and matriarchs or um, you know maternal instincts might have, and how that can be uh, really relevant in you know relationships or how you build your career, how you you know build out what your journey might look like. And so I had it kind of from both sides and. I was fearful of disappointing them. You know, I didn't, my mom, my mom and my dad themselves are artists. And so they're very passionate about anything where you can activate your right brain, anything creative, anything with color, anything with flavor, anything with aroma, just, or, or even writing, um, just anything that helps to, to illustrate uh, different things that you're passionate about. And so we're trying, I was trying to find the balance uh, between these two things, I, you know, I worked from a very, very young age because I enjoyed it. During high school, my first, my first job in the industry when I was uh, 16 was working at a singing hamburger shop in Toronto called Licks. And <laughs> there I got to, uh, I got to cook, I got to, you know, build and dress, you know, delicious hamburgers as, as they were being ordered. Every single thing was ordered in a jingle so everything had a song so there was like this creative aspect but then it was also quite mathematical how do you how do you manage to dress all of these burgers when you have a lineup of 100 people it was like it was a whole thing so that was when i was 16 and i fell in love with with food because a big part of our family is also related to uh, food and beverage and how our family where there are many many problems many disagreements many altercations everyone would sit down and have dinner together. And my mother being a vegetarian, um, and yes, she has a bleeding heart for animals, but also because we were, we were very poor. There were instances where my mom was going to the food bank uh, to get um, canned foods for us uh, when we were kids. And my two brothers and I, we, we didn't even know. She told us when, when we were much, much older. And so food was, was a celebration. And then it was also a reward. You know, our food became better when our families were doing better. And okay. so I think being, being in that hospitality um, area from a very young age and how sacred food and flavor was as sustenance, but also how sacred it was in how it brought people together and became the reward. It became like the true happiness. It was almost more important than socializing. You know, and that's that's a really that's a really amazing thing. And they were rooted in traditions, you know, so on my dad's side or my mom's side, whether it was like the Jewish family or it was, you know, my mom's uh, British family. Food was very ritualistic. It was incredibly rooted in uh, in tradition. And so as I grew up, I just always made sure to have food and flavor as part of what I was doing. And so we talked about when I was 16 at the burger shop. And then I worked in lots of different jobs. After that, I had my first bartending job when I was 18. Um, I was uh, still in high school and uh, I was working in this 
you know, really posh neighborhood in Toronto and, and working in this really beautiful outdoor bar. Um, and that's where I made some of my, my first cocktails ever, you know, furiously looking through my, you know, bartending for dummies and flipping through the book and hoping not to screw up, you know, the first order, which happened to be a non-alcoholic drink that I ended up putting vodka in because I assumed all drinks ordered at a bar would have alcohol in them. So that was a harsh <laughs> lesson um, that I learned very quickly. And then over the years, I just, I, I really needed uh, the hospitality interaction and the food and flavor interaction of people that worked in bars and restaurants connected to whatever I was doing, whatever the other things were. So whether it was, you know, going to school. So I studied international relations and peace and conflict studies in university. Um, I paid for university myself. Uh, my, my parents didn't have any, any cash to, to help me with school. Um, and I, I was always working in bars and restaurants during that time. And it wasn't to make extra cash. It was because I craved and needed um, that connection to the hospitality industry as, as part, of my, part of my survival tactics. And over the years, I just started to add more and more tools to my, you know, to my tool belt of things that, that I really started to learn and understand in the industry. As I fell in love more with food and flavor, I started working more with chefs. As I started really falling in love with, uh, with wines and different aspects of the beverage industry, that's when I started working with sommeliers. That's when I started working with, you know, distillers or uh, blenders. So I think over the years, I've just always... I've just always pursued the aspects of the industry that were sort of the next step um, of my learning and the things that I was most interested in. And, you know, getting to your question on, on mentorship, I always had to have the brave face because I come from the, you know, the family that I just described as, you know, they expect something very particular, um, yet we had to sort of go out and find it ourselves or we had to pay for it ourselves. So that was, that was kind of challenging. And, and then while in those moments, the, the people that I ended up learning from were not official mentors. I mean, we, we, at that time, I never looked to one of the sommeliers I was working with or a chef and said, officially, I would like you to mentor me, or I would like to be mentored by you. It was right. more, you know, so much about subject X and I really respect you. And I will work incredibly hard to learn the ropes and to learn everything that I can, but I'm hoping that you might take me under your wing and show me a bit of extra, you know? And that's sort of how the relationships developed. And so over the years, I've had hundreds, hundreds of people, and they don't necessarily need to be older than me or more experienced than me or more, you know, mature than me or whatever that looks like. It can really be, uh, Anybody, I, I learned just as much from those coming up in the ranks as our of our industry because they look at things differently. Everyone will look at the same thing differently. And I think yeah. the diversity in those opinions is really what helps to shape the type of, of uh, management style, the type of mentorship style. The, the way that you look at things drastically changes. And for me, that was that was absolutely the most important thing. And so I fast forward now, you know. I would say 24 years since I, you know, flipped that first burger at Licks in Toronto. And I have worked at um, some of the, you know, most amazing bars and restaurants in, in Canada. Um, I just always worked incredibly hard and just, just really put myself out there. I forced myself to be 
courageous enough in the moment to ask for what I wanted and to say how I was going to get it um, while trying to bring, I guess, the rest of my group in that moment with me. And then, you know, they, a lot of the people in my group would do the same. And so it's, uh, it's been an amazing journey and it's been met with, with, with lots of success. And it's also been met with a lot of challenge and a lot of self-growth and a, a lot of, um, a lot of things that I need to look back on and, and really reflect and take stock of what happened in those moments. So I can either use that information to lead and help others, or I use it to lead and help myself on, on the journey forward of whatever that looks like. Yeah, I'm a big fan of um, of, of asking for what you want um, and speaking up when there's something that you want to do. I think um, it's really similar to like, you know, going and doing your exercise or whatever. like at the end, you never say like, I really wish I hadn't uh, said that, you know, um, kind of like when I, you know, sometimes you don't want to go work out. And then after you it's you're like, oh, I'm so glad I worked out. Like you never are like, Ugh, I wish I hadn't done that. Um, I feel like it's the same for speaking up for what you want or need, you know, like even if you do, and maybe you don't get what you ask for, um, just even going through the exercise of being able to vocalize like, this is what I want to achieve, or this is where I want to be, I think is a really great um, lesson in, um, in just like, I don't know, like standing up for yourself, um, all of that. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's managing your, it's managing your power and also recognizing that you do have power. And mm -hmm. I, I think, you know, you, you touch on a couple of really important um, points there that I that I just wanted to expand further on because you know the, whether it's imposter syndrome or it's you know having anxiety or feeling like what you're asking for uh, you're not worth it or it's not available and a lot of that comes with with the, the the practice of you know operating in that space of just you know managing your courage or your ability and your, your self-worth in that moment to say, I'm just going to go for it. But we all weigh out the, the pros and cons of asking for what we want. And, you know, is this battle worth fighting? Uh, what are my chances? You know, is it like 80% that I'm going to get what I want, 20% that I'm not? not? It's not that everything has to be a debate and a decision that's, you know, quantified in that way. But Sometimes we do that as a way to protect ourselves um, to if we have no safety net, especially. And, you know, it, I, I suppose having, having the courage to ask for what you want, um, everyone will have a different reason behind why they act the way that they do and how and why they ask for what they want and how they do it. And for me, it has always, it has always been this, this, this fear in my head because my grandmother's voice just plays over and over again of wouldn't it just be easier if you went to school and became a lawyer wouldn't it just be easier if you went to school and became a doctor and she I'm been, so glad that you brought this up oh my gosh keep going and sorry I didn't mean to interrupt you no 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 I mean that's okay but I mean she she comes from a different generation I mean she was born in 1918 she was born at the end of world war one and and for her growing up in her family with you know with nine kids altogether that includes her um you know and and struggling for everything they were you know her parents were immigrants like 
that generationally they were just in a completely different place, you know, figuratively and literally they were in a totally different place and what success looked like for them and how their parents hoped that their kids would be successful and safe is very different to what's happening a hundred years later. And, and I think when I really figured it out, because my, my grandmother has been telling me since I was a kid, um, that exact thing. And I always had to debate with her because I never, it was never do this or else. That wasn't, it was a very democratic like family. It was, I think you should do this. What do you think about that? Well, and this is me talking now. Well, I'm not really sure that that's for me. I know that I'm smart enough to, to, to go to university. I know that I, that I can, I know that if I really want to, uh, could I work hard and get a scholarship? I don't know. Um, do you have any money to give me to support? No. Okay. Well then I've got to, I have to really like own this decision if I'm going to do it. But when it, when it really, when it really came to reality, I think for, for my grandmother and it happened two years ago, only two years ago, and I've been in business for such a long time, <laughs> uh, debating with her all the time. It was, she said, so your father showed me this magazine and you were in it. Mm. And I showed my friends and then they read it. And I understand what you do now. Cause she didn't understand before when I said, sure. I'm a bartender or I'm a sommelier, I'm running bars and restaurants and I am successful or I'm doing this and I'm happy with what I'm doing. It, it feels like the right direction for me. You know, she didn't understand it because in her mind, the context of, you know, a bartender, a chef or someone that works in the, in the food industry is that that's not something you choose to do. It's just something that happens. Um, sure, and yeah. so what, and so once she was able to explain it to her friends, and then show them in a magazine, like she is a featured bartender in this magazine, whatever. Then she totally understood. And then she's, she, she's totally, not that she's off my back. I don't want to make it sound like it's bad, but, <laughs> but she, now she says, oh, how's business? Now it's totally different because she just needed right. that tangible thing to show people. But tell me your story about that. Cause it sounds well, like you have something to say on that. <laughs> well, yeah, no, it just, um, it reminded me the way that you said your grandmother asks you about it. It actually reminded me of um, so we had, we were having this conversation with our um, focus on health team about like, what did, you know, did, do we want to do anything for April fool's day, blah, 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 blah. And um, on this, on our call, I, <laughs> I was like, what, you know, what if we had this panel that was like a confessions panel where we like talk about our, like what what our brain does when things get hard you know because I I think probably a lot of people go through this but like sometimes when work is really hard or whatever you know my brain will just be like go to that place of like what if I just did something that was easier like what if I just had one of those jobs where I didn't have to work at night or like if I had one of those jobs where when you clocked out you actually clocked out or whatever and then you like you know you have the whole conversation with your brain and you're like no because like I'm doing what I love like and you know, this is part of what I love. Um, but it's just like kind of funny where your brain goes like, you know, my brain always goes back to like, oh, what if I just go back to school and continue studying art history and become an, a museum curator? Wouldn't life be so easy then? And I wouldn't have to, you know, be running into work because somebody called out whatever, you know, and it's just like funny. Uh, it just kind of reminded me of that a little bit. Um, you know, what? why don't you just do something that's easier? Um, but 
<laughs> I think it's yeah. I think it's super easy for people on the outside looking in to say, you know, maybe you should consider this, that, and the other. And I think it's brings up an important point that sometimes we just need people to talk to that listen, but don't necessarily offer an opinion or advice, you know? Yeah. And I think and and it's not to suggest that maybe we don't need to hear things in the moment, but I think that's where we sometimes run into trouble. If we're having the internal conflict in our heads, trying to figure things out, it's easier to be able to talk about it. But who do you talk to in that moment? You know, is there like a, a close friend where there's no judgment, uh, a partner, uh, a, a mother or father, like another, a, fam a chosen family member, or perhaps, you know, you pay and you talk to a therapist, but it's, it's trying to distinguish, even for us as professionals, the internal conflict we have in our heads of trying to find out what is the right way forward for us. We do need to come to that conclusion on our own, but it's always good to hear experiences from other people that we might find something in that, a little gem in there that reminds us of our own situation. And that is coming into mentorship because mentorship, the right type of mentorship, in my opinion, are the, the stories that the mentor can provide that are these are experiences that I've gone through that are similar to this particular subject, but prefacing by saying that this is just a situation that I've gone through, but you might find a little gem in there that might help you in your situation. Because I think when you put yourself in a position to, of telling people what they should be doing, they tend to second guess their own gut feeling and their own gut instinct when maybe they just kind of need to come to the conclusion on their own, just with a little bit of baiting in one direction or another to, to help seed, you know, what their ideas might lead to. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And having those, uh, those trusted people that, you know, you can go to and with no judgment, you know, like my, my parents are certainly that for me being able to say like, I have this idea and I could go back to them a week later and say, I actually have this idea and it's completely different than the idea I said last week and know that not have that fear of being like somebody thinking I'm flip-flopping or like we have whatever, you know, having those people that you can trust to just go to with, with all of your thoughts and ideas um, mm -hmm. without judgment is so important. Yeah. So um, I have two more things I want to, I want to make sure we get to talk about on this episode. And the first is, um, you know, the businesses that you own, um, you know, the theme of the podcast this month is, is women in ownership. And, um, you, you actually have a unique, um, a unique outlook on this because you own businesses with your husband and that's, um, you know, a topic that hasn't come up on the podcast yet, which is, um, having a working relationship with your, with your significant other. Um, <clears throat> So I think I'd love to start um, start with that, I think. And then um, the second second topic, the last topic that I wanna make sure we hit is the topic of travel, um, which we talked about in the panel on March 1st. But maybe we start with um, with owning businesses with, you know, with your significant other and um, how this last year has maybe shaped any of your views on, on that. Um, there's not really any like <laughs> layered question within that really. Um, oh my goodness. All the snow just fell off of my uh, window. I don't know if you heard that in the background. I did. I heard so it. Thump. Was, it sounded like yeah. just like something <laughs> fell on the floor. That's yeah. All the snow is falling off the house right now. Um, anyway. <laughs> Crazy. Um, yeah. I, 
as I, as I mentioned to you earlier, you know, being a Canadian, I, I miss the snow sometimes, but then I don't really miss it. So <laughs> I, I'd prefer like some warmer weather. Um, yeah. yeah. So I, I think on the, on the subject of, of owning businesses, so I've, I've mentioned about, you know, my, my parents and both sets of grandparents that an entrepreneurial spirit really does run through um, our family. And it, it's not just me that, um, cherishes and also suffers through <laughs> those characteristics but um it's uh, also my extended family uh both my my brothers um my cousins i have lots of extended family that that own businesses and i have uh you know a lot of uh a lot of family members that ended up um you know opening things with other people some of them have you know sort of these uh marriage businesses as well which uh, my husband and i definitely have but I, you know, I, I think the term workaholic is often given a, a negative connotation, but I think I, I want to, you know, debunk that because a workaholic or someone that loves what they do, that they work, you know, perhaps longer hours and think about it more often than they do anything else is the only way that I want to live my life because I am very passionate about all the topics that our businesses cover. I'm uh, very passionate about our businesses. Um, you know, what it, it, it serves in terms of community aspect, in terms of product um, longevity. We have no investors. So, you know, we have built our businesses from scratch with literally no money, like no money. Um, we worked uh, tirelessly multiple jobs, you know, 24 seven for a long time to build what our businesses are today. But even prior to, to meeting Jonathan, who I met in 2010, I owned two businesses before that, and they were small little local catering companies. The, the first one was called Mademoiselle Chef, and the mm -hmm. second one was called uh, Pepper Catering. And the two of them were a way that I could, you know, make some cash. But more importantly, it was it was serving my community uh, and and cooking because I loved I loved doing both. And that was all at the same time as as working school. Uh, sorry, working a job, doing school, whatever else I was I was focused on, and. I mean, all the cards on the table, my, my second date with Jonathan, I said, you know, we, we've got to have like full disclosure conversation here because I love working and I love what I do. And this industry is everything to me. And, you know, I, I've, you know, owned businesses before. And at the time I owned, uh, I owned a consulting company called Lord Moat Productions. And so for me, I, I really enjoyed the idea of doing things for myself, um, and being able to give other people opportunities through my own view and idea of management and, and community development. And I, I said, where do you want to be in the future? Because I'll tell you where I want to be. I would like to be somewhere in Europe um, with, you know, lots of businesses and with lots of people in our groups that we're able to provide opportunities for and, and doing really great things that make us feel like we're doing so much more than just making a drink, so much more than just putting a dish of food on the table. And, and I, I sort of need you to know that that's where my head's at. And he said, well, that's cool. Cause I feel the same way. And, and here you our, are. Exactly. And, and so that, and that's sort of like a, you know, our, our 11 year anniversary was uh, two days ago. And we, we talk about that a lot. Um, we don't just save that conversation for anniversaries, but it is, you know, definitely a poignant moment on the calendar to, to talk about. But um, so for me, it's not an option 
to be in a relationship with someone that I don't work with, you know, because work is so much a part of what I do. We find our, our, our separation time. We find we have, we're fiercely independent people. We don't do everything together 24 seven. I mean, obviously this last year is, is a little different, but you know, we are fiercely independent people with fiercely different ways of, of, you know, of bringing talent to the table, but the way we do business and, and the way that we champion people and, and, and our community and lifestyle is, is the most important thing that we have in common. And so for us, it would be sad not to go into business together. So our first business we opened in, well, we started seeding what would later become Bittered Sling back in 2010, but we opened our first company in 2011, um, uh, just a year after uh, meeting. And that is still called Kale and Nori. And Kale and Nori, like the land and sea lettuces. And that was our boutique, <laughs> our boutique catering and events company uh, that was vegetable focused uh, with seafood accents. And because Jonathan comes from the, the high-end catering world and uh, destination uh, culinary adventures. So he's just such a brilliant chef. And uh, so we brought his thinking and his his catering development and my ability to build events and, and flavors with cocktails and wine and everything else. So we brought that together and started doing uh, pop-up restaurants and then client events. Uh, the following year, uh, Kale and Nori ended up uh, purchasing the, the trademarks and developed the product line, which is now Bittered Sling. And we did that from 2012 until probably 2018 was the last year we had our pop-up restaurant in, in Vancouver. And we were doing pop-up restaurants in other parts of the world where we would be you know, traveling or, or doing things for tails or uh, any other programs that we were that we were trying to link Bittered Sling into as a cocktail modifier, we would try and do a pop-up restaurant with local bartenders and, and chefs. And so that was, that was a really cool way to build our business because, and, and we had tried to open a restaurant, but for some reason, the spaces never worked out. We couldn't find investors. We weren't really... Um, we didn't have the ability to take out loans to, you know, put behind, you know, a, a brick and mortar restaurant or bar. So we just kept doing catering. And then, you know, we, we became really well known for it um, across Canada with what we were doing and how we were working with, with local bars and restaurants. Um, and then Bittered Sling continued to do that. Even when we stopped catering, Bittered Sling was still the part of the catering that everyone was still familiar with because the bitters were automatically part of that. It was mine and Jonathan's life work, life's work uh, in a bottle, an indefinite shelf life product that would, that would be a, a representation of the way both of us think about food and flavor. And that was sort of like the love of where Bittered Sling came from. And then we, we had the opportunity to showcase ingredients and communities from different parts of the world. For example, you know, the, the specific farm we work with in uh, Madagascar, that is the the producer of our cacao beans for our Malagasy chocolate bitters or the coffee beans for our uh, Arabica coffee bitters. We have, you know, traceability on, you know, the fruit and grain spirit, the non-GMO products that we use in Canada. So we've worked very hard to make sure that any, any businesses that we work with, um, sorry, any businesses that we are developing and any 
partners in those businesses, whether they are the bartenders, the chefs, the suppliers, um, anybody that we work with has that same level of integrity that we produced in the beginning of, of our business plans. You know, we are opening Kale and Nori because we are championing, you know, local ingredients, a, a local way of looking at uh, food and beverage and event planning. And, and it was the same with Bittered Sling. And then when we moved to Amsterdam, we opened Chard and Laver. Now Chard and Laver, these are also land and sea lettuces. They are synonyms of Kale and Nori. And Chard and Laver is our consulting firm. And, and Jonathan and I are still, uh, we're not, we're definitely not doing uh, catering anymore, but we are developing uh, lifestyle branding and programming for, um, for, you know, photography or for, uh, you know, clients that are, are connected to the food and beverage industry. And that's largely what Jonathan is focused on. And Chard and Labor owns the contract, you know, that we, that we work with Diageo on. So it's, it's sort of like an interesting, I mean, it's, it's definitely been eventful um, and it has been a non-traditional way of, <laughs> I think, going through the industry, but mm -hmm. it has really worked for us. And the reason why it works for us is because we, regardless of whether we're married or not, it's because we did it together and because every decision and choice we make, we do together. Um, so we may work excessively at times 24 seven and needs like drastic amounts of alone time just to sort of cope. But then most of the time, everything we do together is a reflection of our, you know, together and collective decision-making. It is a, our collective view on where we see the industry going and where we've been and collectively how we want to give back to our industry. And that is reflected through the core values of all of our businesses. I love that. And actually, I, the thing that I love the most is what you just said at the end is that, you know, your businesses have core values. I think that that's something that is severely lacking for a lot of uh, businesses in our industry that they don't take the time to sit down and think what they, what they stand for. Um, especially, I mean, especially bars and restaurants, but um, any business, whether you do consulting or you make bitters or you own a bar, like I, I hope that more people moving forward take the time to sit down and decide, you know, what what their business stands for and what they want to see in the future and and how they can be a part of that. Yeah, and it's going to be it, it will be even more important um, as as now and as we move forward. There's there's just there are microscopes on everybody, and mm -hmm. it should always. I think it should have always been that way. I think as as we become more affluent consumers, more affluent and aware humans that are not, you know, just fleeting through this life, but we, we make decisions with purpose. We are choosing to invest our time, money, and energy into um, people and businesses and relationships that really do reflect how we feel about the world. And that will just continue to be a very strong barometer, in my opinion, of the businesses that survive and the businesses that die. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Um, all right, so our, our last question before we wrap things up, it, I wanted to touch a little bit on the topic that we talked about during the panel, which was um, travel and our travel schedule. Um, you know, you said I think you said in our in our panel that when you went back and you looked at it, that you had traveled like eighty five percent of the year um, prior to COVID or something somewhere around that percentage. It was really high. I remember. Um, I'd love to you know hear from you a little bit about 
how you got comfortable not traveling, because I think that that was probably just as much of a shock um, as the, you know, lack of balance you have when you are on the road. I'm sure just all of a sudden not traveling was rather shocking. Um, and then any thoughts that you have on how we go back to that style of life and what might look different for you, if anything? Yeah, I, it's, um, it's, it's a bit of a catch 22 because I think any, any ambassadors or anybody in any industry that has a, a rigorous travel schedule knows how, how challenging it is. And it takes about six months to get used to what your normal is. Uh, when, when it is heavily traveled or it could be late nights, it could be anything. It does take about three to six months to, to really get used to it. And then once you get used to it, you just, for me, especially, I mean, I really can't speak for anybody else, but for me, I was so interested in connecting with people around the world. And this was, you know, before people really used FaceTime. I mean, people were using Skype and there wasn't a lot of, um, you know, effort put into video conferencing or video calls. So I think, you know, people really did rely on the face-to-face -face connection as the connection. And I think in, in businesses that, that are really heavily um, relying on that face-to-face -face interaction and that development of the in-person energy and relationship, it just goes to show you that the relationship is the most important, but what that looks like, whether it's you're face-to-face -face in a room or you're on Zoom or you're on a, on a phone call, I honestly think that those things uh, can still be achieved as, as we've seen in the last year. A lot of us feel closer uh, to people that we normally would have seen um, uh, prior to, uh, to the pandemic, but we feel closer to a lot of those people now than we did before because of our efforts made in staying connected. So, you know, in, in the, the three years prior to the pandemic, I was traveling 82% of the year. Your number was very close. I think 85%, uh, perhaps that happened at times, sure. but it was, uh, you know, my, my position is a, is a global position. And, you know, Diageo is a, is a huge company and we were trying to establish that ambassadors that could focus on developing education and programming across all spirits rather than just driven by one category or driven by one specific brand, that we could bring something really, really special to just you know, develop a team of, of experts, aspirational leaders that could really inspire our ambassadors around the world that were in individual countries or regions. And also you know, with bartenders around the world as well that you know, specializing perhaps in one brand or one category in the industry, it might not be, you know, the, the right success model. You know, it could be that if you're a, a specialist or a, a distiller or a blender, maybe focusing on whiskey or rum, that makes the most sense. But I think when you're an ambassador, when you're an aspirational leader in, in our, our wider drinks industry, and you know your territory is 60, 60 countries um, because of world class as well. It's it, it becomes almost impossible to say that one country is more important or less important than another, because visiting Manila in the Philippines to work with a huge 
group of bartenders of varying levels of experience, varying levels of education, varying levels of, you know, types of restaurants and bars that they work in or hotels, that was never less important or more important than say working with bartenders in like Mexico City or in the US or Canada or wherever else. So it, it part of it was, I became not necessarily addicted to the travel, but I became addicted to the connection I had with different cultures of the world and learning from them about their different traditions, about who they really are and about the individual person behind every bartender or every person in our industry. And entrusted with that task of listening and helping to bring to life the things that they were the most excited about in our industry was a very, very large role and a huge, um, just a massive piece of pressure, you know? And so I just really, I really jumped into it. And um, we tried to develop, you know, as we were going and sort of uh, make amends as we were going, but the education program that, that I was helping to develop at the same time was happening happening alongside the travel and alongside the in-person programs and alongside sitting on a committee for the education at Tales of the Cocktail and alongside, you know, owning two businesses or three businesses. Like it was just, there was just so much and it became, it became this chess game of trying to move the pieces in such a way that I didn't lose the king or the queen. You know, I was trying to just to manage all of it uh, at the same time. And then it became that I was addicted almost to the game of the balancing act of how I could manage all of these things and how they how they actually could weave so nicely in with each other to actually make the 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 positions or perhaps the ask of individual businesses or the Diageo role richer than it could have been if it was just a standard job description. So what we really did over the, you know, now it's it's four years in the position, but it's almost six years with, with Diageo, we ended up really just assessing week by week, month by month, quarter by quarter, year by year, and made adjustments accordingly. And I had, you know, the great pleasure in, in, uh, in the last couple of years to work with some really amazing people that, that believed in the education, believed in the power of of bartenders and, and still do. And it continues to be the course of action on how we develop programs like world-class, how we develop programs like Diageo Bar Academy. It is all about community and education and making sure that nobody is left behind. And that, so that to me is worth, you know, getting on a plane 85% of the time until, you know, the job not necessarily is done, but until we feel, I feel like I'm in a really comfortable position that um, bartenders feel like they're cared for, that the brand ambassadors feel like, you know, they have the tools and the resources and the help necessary to be able to bring to life, you know, this vision that they feel very strongly about as well. And I, I think now that I'm off the road, you know, there, there was a sense of relief, if I can say that, you know, I, I think the, the work that we were doing was just so intense that the travel uh, was was becoming so challenging because it it almost became like the the way of working rather than let's lead with the project and then how does the travel fit in to that? We tried to be selective. We tried to sort of move uh, travel around to see how how we could 
make it a little bit easier for me. Um, but we just we had, kept having so many great successes with the programs that we were building that you know markets would would just keep bringing me back. And um, I think what what the pandemic and what lockdown has has shown us is and what has definitely been a relief for me is that I am not necessarily grounded, but I don't need to travel in order to really perform and to really do what I do exceptionally well. In fact, pulling the travel away is what helped to pull back the curtain to really show, you know, Diageo what I could really do. And so we ended up developing World Class Community Week, leading all the huge education initiatives, giant water conservation initiatives, water replenishment, um, you know, gender portrayal and, you know, underrepresented voices as part of like Women's Day or like BIPOC development with, with Diageo Bar Academy. So we had the opportunity now because we were traveling to be able to do something that, that could really help define um, who we were as ambassadors. And for me, I, I led a lot, um, if not like, you know, 90% of those programs during lockdown. So the travel was the trade-off. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a, a really, a really beautiful way to look at it. And um, makes me feel hopeful that, and, you know, moving forward, there can be, there'd be room for both, you know? Um, yeah, I think it's, I, I think it's important that, um, that ambassadors never identify themselves based on you know, a corporate credit card or identify themselves based on, you know, the number of places that they've been or, you know, when can we get back on planes? I think all of us are in the same boat, you know, whether you're an ambassador or someone that works in an industry that does require a lot of travel, or if you're somebody that enjoys traveling, you know, I think yeah. that there will be enough access in the future for all of us to be able to enjoy traveling again and to be able to get on a plane again or to be around people again. But that's the most important thing. I am not running to the airport to get back on a plane, but I am running towards a crowd of people that I miss so like intensely that I just wanna be able to hug more than you know two people at a time or yeah. just to be around other people. And that the travel was sort of the, it, it, it was sort of the reward and also the chore in some ways of getting to, to, to folks to, to be together. But I don't think it should be the thing that, uh, that defines us. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Um, well, we are at the, the end of our time and I just wanted to wrap up by um, having you share how people can find you, um, the best way to find you. And then if you have any um, last words of wisdom or advice that you would want to share uh, for anybody, but since it's Women's History Month, uh, perhaps for women that are um, striving to be, you know, great mentors or great leaders in the industry, any advice that you have for them? Definitely. Um, I am uh, in incredibly approachable and you know, available almost to my, to my detriment, I'm always available. So, um, but it's, it's how I like to operate. So if um, anyone listening in wants to connect or has a specific question or you, you know, you want to share, you want to connect, you can send me a note at Lauren Moat, L-A-U-R-E-N-M-O-T-E on Instagram and, uh, you know, send me a DM, but would love to, would love to connect with 
with anyone and everyone because I am definitely a, a you know a citizen of the world and just a, a lover of people. And I would never have been able to get to where I am today and still so so much to do and so far to go without uh, the unconditional love, the support, and you know the 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 courage of other people around me. And and I think it's it's probably a great place to to end as well that um, you know, for anyone listening, and it's always good that as you're talking, as you're the person talking, so myself included, that you really listen to the advice that you provide other people, but then you also take that same advice yourself. All, so I always like to quote the things that my, that my mom says, she says to me on a regular basis, focus on your circle of influence, fight the battles worth fighting, and also remember that you have superpowers. And each one of us does. It's just about you know reaching within ourselves to find out what they are. And I think for most people, you know what the superhero feelings are. You know what they are, and you know what the powers are. It's how how can we help put each of ourselves in a position of feeling comfortable to use them, comfortable to talk about our superpowers, and how they can be better used for you to reach your personal and professional goals. So a lot of it is just having having the courage to reach out. Um, to someone that you admire, to, to somebody that um, that really inspires you. It doesn't, again, it doesn't necessarily have to be someone older than you or with more experience than you, more mature in the industry than you. It doesn't even have to be anyone in this industry. But I think, you know, taking a chance and, and just knowing that you have nothing to lose. Reach out to someone uh, that inspires you and let them know how they inspire you. And nine times out of 10, I say that 1% because nothing is ever perfect in life, but nine times out of 10, they'll always respond back with, um, you know, with, with a, a, a nice response to start a conversation. And then you just see where it goes from there. Absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing, Lauren. It's been such a pleasure to get to chat and um, I hope that you are able to go enjoy the rest of your evening and uh, have a great night. Thanks. I'm going to go do my 10,000 steps. Maybe you won't be able to unless you're wearing snowshoes in Denver, but uh, yeah. it's very nice outside. But uh, Alex, <laughs> uh, it's it's the pleasure is all mine, honestly, to be here. And I admire so much what, uh, what you and, you know, LP, Lauren Paler are doing with folks on health. And you have uh, created such an incredible and supportive uh, industry and group of people around you. And it's because of that you know, big support group that all of us can can feel like we can share and feel like you've really helped to create these safe cyberspaces for everybody. And so a big thank you to you for now creating another platform for everyone to share and perhaps be inspired. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Um, all right. Well, thank you. I hope you have oh. a great night. You too. And I should say one more thing. I also have another yeah. uh, uh, social enterprise program on Instagram called Women Celebrate. And that's yes. women spelt with an E. And so we, we you know, share and champion stories about uh, women and female identifying uh, folks in our industry that, um, that really are doing wonderful things and, you know, we're open to sharing anybody's stories. So definitely give a visit on Instagram. Yeah. Thanks, Alex. Thank you Thank for you including again. that. Thank you, Lauren. <laughs> yeah. Cheers. Have a great night. Thanks. Bye.
to ensure that you don't miss an episode, please subscribe to the Focus on Health podcast on Spotify, Anchor, or anywhere else you get podcasts. Make sure to tune in every Monday for new episodes, and don't miss Snowproof with Joshua Gandy every other Wednesday.